so like, I'm getting tired of being the only one singing here, so I thought maybe we could try a sing-along. Uh, this is a... Uh, I'll teach it to you. Um, this song's called You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead. And, uh, I, uh... Yeah. So, when I say, it's kind of a call and response thing. You don't really have to sing it. You're not into that. Um, but it's encouraged. John Gorka played here a couple uh, months ago and said that uh, singing actually releases a chemical in your brain that helps you lose weight. So, <laughs> so please join in. It's like it's like exercising. <laughs> um, so I stole the title for this song from a, a Flannery O'Connor novel uh, called *The Violent Bear It Away*. Uh, the original title for that novel was You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead. So thanks, Flannery. I owe you one. So the chorus to this goes like this. When I say rich folks get, you say richer and richer. And then when I say sick folks get, you say sicker and sicker. And then when I say the gap between them gets, you say... Bigger and bigger. You're getting this. And then when I say the days go by, you say quicker and quicker. And that's uh, that's enough uh, singing, I think. So let's let's run through that real quick. I'll give you the tune. Isn't this fun? Thank you, Yaila. Um, I, I just remembered the other two announcements I had. One of them was save the champagne for the last toast. Sorry. My bad. Yeah, it's okay. Um, but for I'm going to ask you to raise a cup and see if you can find another cup on your table that doesn't have champagne on it. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is let's just give it up one more time for Niazi's food. How about it? Anybody who helped make this food, make this meal. In August of 2019, my brother Sam got married. When he called me and asked me to be his best man the year before, 
I remember joking with him that I would use my speech as an opportunity to talk about this rash I've been having, or to go on a rant about how I thought 9-11 was an inside job. Which I don't, by the way. It was a joke. That was the point. But I remember Sam getting real quiet on the phone and saying, Will, you'd better not do that. Please don't make me regret this. Sam seemed to think that I might not be kidding, that I might actually use my platform as his best man on the most important day of his life to humiliate and embarrass him. And I think that highlights a key difference about us. Sam is super serious, and I'm not. Not at all. In fact, I consider myself a real goofball. And that might surprise some people, especially because there is a lot about us that is the same. After all, we're twins. Identical twins. So on the day of my brother's wedding, I didn't humiliate him, or at least not intentionally. But I did open with a joke. And before I play this for you, I just want to mention one key bit of information about my brother's wedding. My brother's bride, Jamil, who is now my brother's wife and my sister-in-law, is also a twin, an identical twin. My brother paid a videographer to document his wedding, which is the only reason I have audio of this. In addition to asking me to be his best man, my brother also asked me to be the MC, so I had to introduce speakers, make announcements, that sort of thing. I started off by making a few announcements that folks should be mindful of the wind, to hold on to their champagne until the last toast, to thank Jamil's dad for raising, slaughtering, and preparing the lamb we were enjoying, for example. I also reminded everyone to tip their bartenders, which I'm really glad I did, because it scored me some free drinks for the remainder of the evening. Anyway, I gave my toast after Yila, Jamil's twin sister. The wedding was at a mountaintop resort called Bogus Basin in Boise, Idaho, where Jamil and Yila grew up. If it sounds like I'm out of breath, it's partly because we were something like two miles above sea level. Picture a warm August afternoon in a giant tent set up on concrete, which during other parts of the year function as tennis courts. Also, if it sounds like I'm nervous, it's because I was. The fact that two identical twins are getting married. I don't know. I don't know how how you guys didn't know that. People people have been coming up to me all weekend saying like, "Hey, congratulations!" I'm like, "No, I'm not getting married." Um, but I thought I would just really quickly. I just want to discredit this notion that like twins are weird or that a twin marrying another twin is weird. Um, yeah, Sam and I we were actually talking about this last night. Um, he had just finished uh, clipping my toenails, and putting me to bed, he tucked me in, he brushed my teeth, and I was like, Sam, twins, twins aren't weird, right? And, and as he lay his feet down on the pillow next to mine, he, uh, he was like, nah, man, people who, don't, who, people who think twins are weird are just haters. They're, they're just jealous. And then from the top bunk, Jamil and Yila popped their heads down, and... Uh, they were like, yeah, we totally agree. <laughs> Nothing weird about this. The toast goes on. By the way, I should really credit my pal Pete Smith for help with that joke. And why did I ask my friends for help writing this speech? Remember that part where I said that Sam wasn't able to be the best man at my wedding? I was not able to ask Sam to be my best man because I eloped 
Um, but I do hope that he knows that he is and always will be my best man. I'm very honored and touched that he asked me to do this. It's kind of a long story, but the punchline is that my wife and I got married in 2013 and didn't tell either one of my brothers or my parents, who were actually out of the country at the time, until after the fact. Oh, and then we did it again in LA for New Year's a few months later. That's right, we got married twice, and somehow I neglected or forgot to invite my family both times. We'd always said we were going to elope and then do a West Coast wedding, and then at some point an East Coast wedding, and we did steps one and two, but we never got around to step three. Needless to say, this was a deep affront for my brother. He felt betrayed. How could I get married and not tell him? I'm still not sure I know the answer. The point is, I asked for help writing this toast because I saw it as a chance to redeem myself, to once and for all make up for the fact that I had neglected to bestow this honor upon my brother, my twin brother. I felt I was under an enormous amount of pressure, so I reached out. The truth is, I was devastated that my brother felt like I had excluded him from my own marriage ceremony. Aren't twins supposed to tell each other everything? Aren't they supposed to know what's going on with one another without even needing to say it? What about twin language? Did we learn nothing from all those Cheech and Chong movies? So why didn't I tell him? Or maybe the question is, why couldn't I tell he would get so upset? Another thing I mentioned in my toast is that I wanted to dispel some myths about twins. And I do. If you're a twin, you are probably tired of explaining to people that, no, when my twin gets hurt, I can't feel it, and no, we don't have some secret language that only we can understand. My parents like to tell a story about how one time, when my brother and I were still too young to walk, they put us to bed one night in separate cribs on opposite sides of the room, only to find us in the same crib in the morning. I think this could be due to any number of things my parents probably should have been more concerned about than a cute and inexplicable story. Something like a potential break-in or an attempted kidnapping. Finally, no, we don't function as stand-ins when we can't be two places at once. I don't fill in at the important business meeting so that my brother can still be at his anniversary dinner without letting on to either his wife or his boss that he accidentally overbooked himself. This isn't a sitcom, and we're not clones. Here are a few cold hard facts about twins. Identical twin pregnancies occur about 0.45% of the time. One in every 250 births is an identical twin. Or maybe it's more accurate to say two out of every 500 births are twins. Identical twins occur when the egg splits after it is fertilized. Identical twins sometimes have the same genetics, but not always. I've often wondered if my brother could frame me for Grand Theft Auto by leaving a drop of his blood inside of a stolen car. When my daughter was born, I found out I'm a carrier for cystic fibrosis. I assume this means that he is too, but I can't be sure unless he gets genetic testing. Identical twins never have the same fingerprints, which means I can't unlock his iPhone and I'll have to figure out another way to frame him for Grant Larceny. I'm kidding. My brother doesn't have an iPhone. Apparently, about 40% of twins actually do develop some kind of autonomous language. So I guess I lied earlier. 
You might know about the Maori twins, child stars of Sister Sister, the Olsen twins, child stars of Full House, the Bush twins, the Winklevoss twins, but did you know that John Hader, aka Napoleon Dynamite, also has an identical twin brother? Elvis had a twin brother who died at birth. Apparently, it haunted him. Fraternal twins are dizygotic, which means they are less interesting. But really, dizygotic means they occur when two separate eggs are fertilized. Sometimes, this is because more than one egg has been released, which is common in women who have hyperovulation, which can be genetic. So, like diarrhea, twins can run in your genes. Vin Diesel, Alanis Morissette, Isabella Rossellini, Ashton Kutcher, Kiefer Sutherland, and Scarlett Johansson all have fraternal twin siblings. But still, isn't there something kind of weird about twins? Jamie and Cersei Lannister from Game of Thrones certainly haven't helped make twins seem less weird in popular culture. Hashtag twincest. When I was 10, my family moved to a house in the suburbs of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I spent my fifth grade year in a very small elementary school of about 200 students. In my fifth grade class alone, there were five sets of twins. One of them, let's call them the Williams brothers, were identical twins who still wore the same thing to school every day. They had the same backpacks, the same bikes, the same shoes, and the same outfit every day. They even had the same initials, Mark and Matt. I know that the parents are likely at fault when something like this happens. I've seen old photos of my brother and me dressed in the same outfit. But in fifth grade? At my brother's wedding, I wanted to joke about how twins are weird. And some twins are weird. The chance of giving birth to identical twins might be 2 in 500, but what are the chances of two identical twins marrying one another? And... What are the chances of those twins having twins? I don't know. I'm sure the odds are astronomical. Nevertheless, it happens. In August of 1998, Craig and Mark Sanders attended the annual Twins Day Festival held every summer in Twinsburg, Ohio. I love how the article by Scott Stump from 2013 puts this. Quote, Mark Sanders had just experienced love at first sight at a twins convention in Twinsburg, Ohio, when his first thought was that he better go find his identical twin brother, unquote. When people say that twins are weird, I think they are talking about this kind of codependence. Mark met and fell in love with Darlene Nettemeyer, and then introduced his brother Craig to her sister, Diane Nettemeyer. The brothers proposed on the same day and married the Nettemeyer twins the following year. Then, in 2001, Diane gave birth to identical twin boys, Colby and Brady. In the months leading up to their wedding, I sent my soon-to-be sister-in-law articles about the Sanders twins and the Twins Day Festival. I would remind her to keep the weekend of the Twins Day Festival open, because we were going. Tell Yila! Her sister, I said. Of course, I was not serious. Again, I'm the goofball here, the joker. To clarify, I don't think that my brother's relationship with Jamil is weird or too codependent. I actually don't think that the fact that they are twins has anything to do with their relationship. 
They didn't meet in Twinsburg, Ohio, and I didn't introduce them. I don't think of either one of them as codependent people. But I also can't help wondering if that's part of what brought them together. Were they drawn to one another because, in some way, they thought, here's a twin who can stand in for, supplement, or maybe replace my relationship with my twin sibling? By the way, this is also a question I could be asking of myself as well. While I didn't marry a twin, my first quote-unquote girlfriend, who also may have been my first kiss in middle school, was a fraternal twin. At the time, I didn't think twice about whether or not this was strange or was symptomatic of codependence. But now, it has me wondering. Today, I'm also less sure that I'm kidding when I say I want to go to the Twins Day Festival in Twinsburg, Ohio. Apparently, twins meeting their twin spouses is not an uncommon occurrence. In August of 2017, identical twins Brittany and Brianna Dean met identical twins Josh and Jeremy Salyers. A lot of alliteration with these names, you'll notice, at the Twins Day Festival. A year later, the two couples married one another at the same event where they met. So why does this happen? Are twins more codependent than other pairs of siblings? Was twinship a factor of any consequence in my brother's courtship with his wife? These are all interesting questions, and I would like to get to the bottom of them. But answering these questions is not really my goal with this podcast. Instead, I want to tell you a story that isn't really mine to tell. It's a story about my brother that I know my brother could do a better job telling. In fact, it's a story he's already told, and has been telling for years now. The trouble is that you haven't been listening. This is a story about the one moment in my life when I found myself unable to handle being a twin. It's a moment I'm still reeling from, and a moment I know he is haunted by. But it's also the moment where I think my brother and I finally set off on different paths to become our own people. Me, a goofball father who has trouble taking anything too seriously, and him, a serious artist. It's the story of how my brother and I came to be different people to the point where one of us wants to visit Twinsburg, Ohio in August, and the other doesn't. If I were not me, and you were not you, and we did not both know what we've both been through. My name is Will Steffen. Welcome to Someone Else's Blues, a podcast about twins, twinship, and the best singer-songwriter you've never heard of. I'd be singing someone else's blues. Part 1. Someone Else's Shoes One of my favorite stand-up comedians, Stephen Wright, has this joke. He says, when I have a kid, I want to put him in one of those strollers for twins and then run around the mall looking frantic. It's great deadpan humor, classic Stephen Wright, but it's also funny to me because it simulates a loss I don't think I'm quite capable of imagining. My brother Sam and I were never really separated until he went off to college. In our junior year of high school, our dad took us to look at some colleges in New England. I was not particularly excited about going to college, 
I had read a few too many George Orwell novels, which had romanticized a working-class lifestyle. It turns out I really knew nothing about. So I was more excited to get a job after high school than to try to get into college. But my dad wanted to show us some quote-unquote alternative kinds of schools. So he drove us up the New York Thruway to visit Bard College in Annandale on Hudson. And from there, we jumped onto the Mass Pike to visit Hampshire College in Amherst. To make a long story short, Sam got into Bard on an early admission decision, and I got into Hampshire, but decided to defer for a year so that I could get a job to see what the real world was like for a while. Or at least what it was like from my cozy room in my parents' house, my parents who didn't charge me rent. I actually applied to Bard as well, but I like to think the fact that Sam had already decided to go there influenced my decision to go and do something else for once. Or maybe it was the fact that our tour of Hampshire just happened to coincide with Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman's visit with their son. That definitely made my decision easier. I first met Bill Cranshaw when I went to pick my brother up and bring him home from his first year of college in May of 2007. I would get to know him much better when, in April of 2008, Sam and Bill, along with their friends Paul and Annika, rode their bikes from Bard across the Berkshires to come visit me at Hampshire, a distance of almost exactly 100 miles. To be more precise, I should say that Sam was visiting me, but Bill was visiting his brother, whose name was also Sam, and who also attended Hampshire. So to recap here, I, Will, was attending Hampshire with Bill's brother Sam, while my brother Sam was attending Bard with Sam's brother Bill, which is close enough to Will. Sam and Bill were not twins. Sam Cranshaw was a few years older than Bill and Sam and me, and he was a really interesting person. He was an avid skateboarder and had figured out a way to make skateboarding part of his senior project. Sam and Bill's parents, Sue and Whitney Cranshaw, had also attended Hampshire back when it was founded. I think they were part of the first class of the early 1970s. Sue told me she worked in the bookstore with Ken Burns. I think Sam Cranshaw claimed to be the first second-generation Hampshire student whose parents had both attended, but I'm not sure how he could have verified that. I'm not trying to say that this happened deliberately, but in hindsight, does it not seem strange that my brother Sam would gravitate towards and eventually become the closest of friends with a kid named Bill, whose brother Sam attended the same school as his twin brother Will? I know this isn't the same thing as marrying a twin, but is this codependence losing its training wheels? bike trip from Bard to Hampshire was the first of many trips among my brother's group of friends. After graduating from Bard, my brother actually came to Amherst to live with me for a while. He got a job working at a warehouse. We went out to breakfast a lot during those months, the way we used to when we both had paper routes back in Bethlehem, and spent most of our earnings in diners on Friday and Sunday mornings. Sam found the time to run the Hartford Marathon one weekend while he was living in Amherst even though he didn't really find the time to train for it. 
He told me the most he did to train for it was to go on a seven-mile run one Saturday when he wasn't working. But Sam was just biding his time. He was working and saving his money. In the spring of 2011, Sam moved his stuff back to Bethlehem with our parents. Then he flew out to Orange County, California to meet up with his friends Paul, Bill, and Hannah to embark on a cross-country bike trip. They made it as far as Searcy, Arkansas. I guess then I wouldn't be here trying to choose now between mine and I should probably mention that the other thing Sam started doing around the time he graduated from college was writing music. He sent me a tape during my last semester of college, and I was rather impressed with his songwriting. That was the first time I heard the song Someone Else's Blues, which is a song about being a twin. Those were the days of the wind and the rain. Only difference is that now, well, it's exactly the same. I sent you a letter a while back just to see how you are. Can you still play piano on that old worn-out guitar? But you should have seen your face that day It looked not a thing like mine Why is it always common sense that says It's alright to just be yourself sometimes Lightning never strikes the same place twice, they say but even if it did, they might not believe that anyway. If I were not me, and you were not you, that I would not want not to not be not you. The hardest part about loving you it has never been that hard to do. I remember being extremely impressed and maybe even a little bit jealous at what I was hearing. I think I always thought that writing music shouldn't be that hard, especially if I knew how to play an instrument, which I did the piano, but not well. But I never took the time to learn how to play the guitar, or at least not until after my daughter was born. And at some point, I think anxiety set in the way I imagine it sometimes can with siblings and probably always does with twins. At a certain point, I was crippled by the anxiety of influence, so I just stopped trying. Writing, and writing music, was Sam's thing. I would have to figure something else out. The sun had softened to an evening light. My mind was overfilled with things. Woody Allen has a great joke. Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. And those who can't teach, teach Jim. I actually would eventually become a teacher. But I feel like most of what I have learned, I have learned from my brother Sam. Come. 
few days before I graduated from college, I was eating with some friends at a burger place in Northampton, Massachusetts, when I got a call from my mom. Normally, I wouldn't answer the phone if I was out, but I had missed a call from her earlier, so I picked it up. She told me she had gotten some sad news from Sam on the bike trip. I walked outside with my phone, and she told me that Bill had been hit by a car. He didn't make it, she said. Something about the way those two geese flew reminded me Those were the same words Sam said to me when I called him later that night, trying to find out what had happened and how he was doing. He didn't make it. I knew Sam was going to miss my college graduation, but now it wasn't going to be because he was out seeing the country. It was going to be because he was busy planning a memorial service. So as soon as I was finished graduating from college, I drove with my parents the 100 miles to Bard to attend the memorial service for Bill Cranshaw to be held on the following day. I remember that I didn't see my brother until later in the evening the night I arrived. He was standing in his friend's apartment, surrounded by friends who were all drinking beer and making paper cranes. Some were laughing, some were crying. After I hugged my brother, someone put a beer in my hand and someone else shoved paper into my other hand and insisted that I start folding it into the shape of an animal. I remember spending that night with my brother in a gigantic chicken coop on a property belonging to someone he knew in Tivoli, which had been converted into a kind of apartment with a few beds. I remember him telling me that he hadn't gotten much sleep in the last week since the accident, and that he was so tired of crying that he just couldn't cry anymore. He also told me that Bill's parents and brother were going to arrive the following morning from Colorado. When we woke up the next morning, Sam had to run off on an errand to get ready for the service later that day. He told me I should walk into Tivoli and try to grab a donut from the bakery, and that we would meet up later. Tivoli, New York, is very tiny. It has a fancy hotel restaurant, a bakery, a pizza shop, a laundromat, and that's about it. As I was leaving the bakery, I saw Bill's mom, dad, and brother walking down the street towards me. They had just arrived from the airport. I recognized them immediately. I had only met Bill's parents once before at Sam's graduation the prior year, but I remember that I had pressed them for stories of what Hampshire was like in the early days. Twins get used to being mistaken for one another. You also get used to having people embarrass themselves the first time they meet the other sibling and can finally make a comparison up close. Our own mother calls us by the wrong name every now and then. 
In my toast at my brother's wedding, I wasn't kidding when I said that people had been coming up to me all weekend and congratulating me. There were a lot of plus ones at the wedding who had never met Sam, and who just assumed I was him. I remember letting one guy get pretty confused before I corrected him. He saw me playing with my two-year-old son and started asking me questions about whether this was my second marriage already. No, friend. I'm the groom's twin brother. Again, if you're a twin, you get used to this kind of thing. But I don't think I was ready for the way that Bill's mom greeted me. When I got close enough to her on that vacant Tivoli sidewalk, on that foggy, cool May morning, Sue, Bill's mom, opened her arms and grabbed me. Oh, Sam, she whimpered. As I held her, I could feel her body get heavier with each sob. And I slowly realized the weight I was bearing. Normally, when people mistake me for my brother, I'm pretty quick to correct them and laugh it off. But I couldn't move. Sue had identified me. Oh, Sam. And this is the moment that has haunted me. It's when I realized, wow, I'm really not my twin brother. It's when I realized I don't think I can handle the responsibility of being my brother. Because this was a tremendous weight. I remember thinking that Sam's reunion with Sue and Whitney had to be special. I don't know who had called them to tell them that their son was dead, but I think Sam had spoken with them at some point to tell them his version of what had happened. And now I had interrupted the sanctity of that reunion, simply by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I felt like I had deceived Bill's mom by wearing my brother's face, posture, and gait on the morning of her son's funeral. I remember thinking that Sue deserved to hug my brother, who had been there with her son when he had died who had shared in her loss for the way he had been unable to do anything to save him. In the time I have had to reflect on that moment, it has also occurred to me that maybe Sue hadn't mistaken me at all, but that maybe she couldn't bring herself to call me by my name, because I bore a name that was so close to the name of her dead son. Or maybe she had been busy consoling her other son over the past several days, and had just gotten used to saying, Oh, Sam. It's not her fault that she named her sons Bill and Sam. I didn't know what it was like to be too tired to cry. And I couldn't stop crying as my brother read his eulogy for Bill later that afternoon. I remember thinking that my twin brother had suddenly grown old, become in an instant decades my senior. I remember thinking that we weren't twins anymore, that something had happened here that was irreparable. I also remember thinking that it just as easily could have been Sam who had been killed. So this song, for lack of a better title, is called a brief reflection upon my life to date. <laughs> but I guess they could all be titled that. Thank you so much for being here, by the way. Uh, 
this really it means a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to everybody at Godfrey's. Uh, so you uh, you keep this place going. For me, being Sam's twin has, in in this way, I feel like as twins we're not supposed to talk about this, but. For those of us in the room who kind of worship at the altar of Sam, um, for me, it's been it's been imitating Sam whenever I can. Um, in high school, I quit cross country, or I, I quit band and started running cross country so I could hang out with him and his friends. We started going on these night runs, something I'm pretty sure mom and dad still don't know about. Um, uh, I want I learned I picked up a guitar for the first time in my life after I heard Sam play a song called. Ain't no friend of mine, which I found out is only three chords and not that difficult to play. Um, but, and I'm also not entirely convinced it's a song that's not about me. But, yeah, I, I've wanted to imitate Sam in all of these ways. But the thing I think is most admirable about Sam is the way he's able to p bring people together. And that came up today in the vows. Um, I remember distinctly in May of 20, 2011, um, watching Sam help to bring a community of people together when all anybody wanted to do was fall apart. Um, and, and I think reflecting on that quality about Sam, I think the same thing happens when he plays his music. And I think that's what's really amazing about Sam's music is that if you've ever seen, I like to, when I see him play, I like to sit up front so that I can turn around and look at all the people and just look at how they're they're not doing anything except listening to Sam. To understand. Sometimes I wish I could control the seasons, control my heartbeat, or direct its yearning, or that only something was not out of my hands, and I have Or by others like you I only wanted someone I could see so that if I am nothing but a coward now and you may not believe this and you do not have to but it's only because once I was much too Did you catch that? Like you, I only wanted someone that I could save. So that if I am nothing but a coward now, and you may not believe this, and you do not have to, it's only because I was once much too brave. As I mentioned in my toast, I try to go hear my brother play music whenever I can. It's not often. I live and work in Western Massachusetts, and my brother lives and works in Philadelphia. And even if I don't always get to sit up front, I do think there is something about hearing him live that doesn't always translate well on recording. I wasn't able to make it to the show where Sam first performed this song, which might be somewhat pretentiously titled, A Brief Reflection Upon My Life to Date. For all I know, this is the only time he ever performed this song. And that's the thing about being a prolific songwriter. Sam is always writing new music, 
so I often don't get to hear him perform some of my favorite songs more than once, because he's always got some new song ready to go. The song feels a bit like a journal entry. There is no catchy refrain, no sparkling melody. It's just the same three chords strummed over and over again against a desultory reflection. But this is one of my favorite songs by my brother because of that line. Once, I was much too brave. You expect a brag. You may not believe this and you do not have to. And then he punches you in the gut with that. Once, I was much too brave. Such a preset hasn't helped me any. I've been eluded at almost every corner. I've been slowed and hindered. I've been stopped at boundaries. I've been sent away from almost every coast, and I have lived. In the months following Bill's memorial service, Sam moved back home to Bethlehem for a while. Then he moved to Nashville. No, not to make it big as a musician, though I don't think the move hurt him any in that department, but to attend a graduate program at Vanderbilt Divinity School. I spent the rest of the summer in Western Mass and then started a graduate program of my own at UMass Amherst. But during those months, every now and then my brother would send me a handwritten letter and a burned CD of some of his songs. The recordings were often pretty crude, laden with white noise. I couldn't tell if it was deliberate on his part, maybe trying to imitate the hastily made recordings of Woody Guthrie. Or maybe he was just using some primitive equipment. In a lot of my brother's songs from that period, I don't get the sense that he really wanted his audience to think of him as a good singer. Sometimes I felt like I was his audience, that his music wouldn't make sense to anyone else but me, or to those who had been there at Bill's funeral. what it's like to be much too brave. I don't know what it's like to watch your best friend, who wasn't doing anything wrong, by the way, who was in the shoulder, wearing his helmet, minding the traffic, watching his speed, suddenly get hit by a car. I don't know what it's like to find the courage to attempt CPR without really knowing how it's done. I don't even know what it's like to have to wait for an ambulance, or to have to read the faces of the EMTs who can tell when someone is revivable and when they're not. 
I don't know what it's like to lose a brother, a son, or even a best friend. But I felt like a lot of the songs my brother sent me during that period were an attempt to convey what it was like. Some of them may have even told me that the Sam I had said goodbye to had left with Bill and had never come back. Take, for instance, Right Where We Left Off, a song that breaks my heart every time I listen to it. Right where we Sam made a cleaner recording of this song, but I prefer the original recording he sent me, which sounds like it was recorded on a disintegrating tape. For a long time, I couldn't listen to this song without crying. It's the only song of my brother's that seems to address Bill directly. But it also reminds me that my brother and I were once able to pick up right where we left off, something it has become increasingly difficult for us to do. Bill figures prominently in some of Sam's songs, like Say When, a song whose title always reminds me of the way my dad used to pour milk on my cereal when I was too young to do it myself, and would ask us to say when. Instead of saying stop, we always just said when. And in a way, that is what it's about. Say when when you've had enough. And even though he keeps saying when, he doesn't get to control his trauma or decide when his grief is through with him. No. We might have turned around, we might have come home. We might have grown old, we might have been shown a way of our own through thick and thin and gone it alone. I just can't say when. Friend of mine 
from college passed away about uh, a couple years ago. And um, I came home for Christmas and I was uh, really wanting to write a song about it. Um, but I couldn't think of anything. And then one night I, was, I went out on a long walk and came back and saw two geese fly over my house. Uh, and, uh, I guess that was the image that I needed. This morning to a shade of sun was resting warmly up against my face, and though I knew I'd be the only one, I did not disturb your place. Bill definitely seems like one of the geese in Two Geese whose only purpose is to remind the narrator of an unnamed you. Something about the way those two geese flew reminded me of you. Two geese flew over the house last night. This morning you were on my mind. Perhaps it was the way it seemed their fate. That after nearing they would separate Perhaps it's just that it was getting late They'd come right out of the blue But something about the way those two Something about the way those two geese flew reminded me of you. And then at other times, Bill makes a much more subtle appearance in Sam's music. Take In No Hurry Now, the song about taking it easy when things seem like they're getting out of hand. Had a car, drove it fast I had appointments to keep I gave it gas I had a best friend he had a crash since then things have slowed some thought I knew what all my time was for my life seemed finished I was 24 when I look in for what was here before Turns out the whole world's fast and lonesome but I am in If you would all raise a glass, I thought it would be appropriate to quote the words of the immortal bard um, You know, Billy Shakes, that guy I study, who said let us not, to the marriage of these true minds, admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, nor bends with the remover to remove. Oh no. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although its height be taken. 
Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within its bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor my brother never loved. To Sam and Jamil. Sorry, Oscar, I didn't mean to spill that on you. At Sam's wedding, Jamil's half-brother West came up to me after my toast and asked me what I was talking about when I referenced May 2011 in my speech. Sue, Whitney, and Sam were also there for my toast. They had made it to the wedding. Whitney, who's an entomologist, actually caused a traffic jam on his way up the one narrow road that climbs the mountain to the Bogus Basin Resort. He pulled over, though apparently not far enough for traffic to pass, to get a look at a rare beetle. This is considered normal behavior for Whitney, even for a wedding. And as I explained everything to West, I found myself wondering how other people listen to Sam's music who don't know his story. Part of me feels like I'm breaking a rule by sharing this with you, that I'm talking over the music, shouting its meaning at you instead of letting the artist speak for himself or the artwork speak for itself. I get that it sounds like I'm committing a cardinal sin for an English professor, who's supposed to know that the author is dead and all that. But I'm also trying to explain what it is like to be a twin, and to watch your twin experience something traumatic that you can't, for once, share. Sam has communicated his trauma to me and to others through his music. I, on the other hand, have not been good at reciprocating or communicating my sympathy and my empathy to my brother over the years. In graduate school, my habit of writing to my brother fell to the wayside, and getting married without telling him didn't really help make things any better. I have, however, made use of other aspects of our supposed twin language. As I explained in my toast, I have had a habit of imitating Sam over the years. I think this is something that twins do. They find their individuality, their independence, their solitude in one another. Two years after Sam started his graduate program in Nashville, he received his master's degree from Vanderbilt Divinity School. Our entire family went to his graduation ceremony, and Sam received an MTS, a Master's in Theological Studies, a degree only slightly less useless than a Master's in English. When my family and girlfriend, who would eventually become my wife, attended his graduation, we got to meet a lot of his friends and to see how his music had only been nourished by his time in Nashville. And then, two days after I got back to Western Mass from Nashville, I found myself imitating my brother again. No, I didn't start writing music. Instead, I loaded up my bike with my friend Bob and set out on a bike trip halfway across the country. When I was in Nashville, I knew I had to be home in time for our departure date but I couldn't bring myself to tell my brother. I couldn't bring myself to tell my family. I just didn't want them to worry or to give me some speech about how I didn't know what could happen out there. I knew what could happen. That was the point. William Till, he spoke these final words. Passing through, I was just passing through. Life sure ain't long and there ain't much to do. 
so will you Cause all of us are only passing through So without saying a word to my brother, I hopped on my bike and started riding. So what happened on my bike trip? Next time on Someone Else's Blues. Just passing through Just like every single breath you drew All of us are only passing through I guess then I wouldn't be here Trying to choose between mine and someone else's blues Someone Else's Blues is a podcast written, produced, and edited by Will Steffen. Music, of course, by Sam Steffen. By the way, if you like the music you have been hearing on this podcast, you can hear more at samsteffen.bandcamp.com. That's S-A-M-S-T-E-F-F-E-N dot B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P dot com. samsteffen.bandcamp.com. But you should have seen your face that day looked not a thing like mine why is it always common sense that says it's all right to just be yourself sometimes lightning never strikes the same place twice they say but even if it did they might not believe that anyway if i were not me and you're not you that I would not want not to not be not you the hardest part about loving you is that it has never been that hard